And uh, we are in Exodus chapter 16. Bread from heaven is the title. We are looking at the blessing of the manna that comes down from God and is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and a picture of his provision in our lives through the word of God, Exodus 16, second book of your Bible. We've been moving verse by verse through the book of Exodus. This one is bread from heaven. The disciples watched Jesus in his earthly ministry. They watched him move around, interact with people, pray, share. And they asked him in Matthew 6, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I can feel all the people who grew up in the Catholic Church wanting to join me. (laughs) Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. In the Greek New Testament, there's a word for test and temptation that are actually the same word. And the way it's translated in English is dependent on context. And the word is perazzo. And it can mean a test from God. And it also can mean a temptation from Satan. And what we're going to find in this particular text is that God is going to test his people again, and he's going to test them with a little stretch of them being hungry. And he's going to teach them a deep lesson about the bread of God, the bread that we all really need, the the deepest needs of our lives. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote Mere Christianity, and many of you know that C.S. Lewis was an atheist, he became a Christian. He talked about a hunger for things that the world doesn't satisfy, and I'm just paraphrasing now. And he said, if we hunger for things that this world cannot fulfill, perhaps we were made for another world. What C.S. Lewis was getting at was there are things in the souls of people. We can look at people all around the world. We can think of friends and family and coworkers and people in our neighborhood who may sense a, sense a hunger in their souls, but they don't really know how to fill it. And we know the, the true bread that we really need, that they really need, and it's the bread of God. And the fulfillment of the manna is going to come later in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also an additional element of that, which is that the word of God is what we need as our daily bread. Israel in Exodus 16:1 is moving from Elam, If you were with us two weeks ago, uh, 16.1 of Exodus, Elam is the place of abundance. There were uh, date palms and 12 springs, and it it was that place that speaks of abundance and overflow. And two weeks ago, we had Pastor Christian Ionescu with us, and it led us into our Sunday evening uh, 6.33 event. And I had told you that I had found out that I had made the connection that he pastors a church called Elam Pentecostal Christian Fellowship. And I had asked Pastor Christian, why did you choose that name? And he had said that when they open the church doors, Sundays, Wednesdays, whenever they open them up, they want people to experience the blessing, the overflow, springs of water, and uh, they, be, they want people to be met with the love of Christ and 
and the living waters that only Christ can give. And so the, the people of Israel experienced that. They had the bitter waters of Marah. God turned them sweet. Then they came to this place called Elam. And I'm sure they would want to remain there forever. It's a place that many of us have been. A place where, you know, maybe it's in the midst of a church service or a personal devotional time. Or we just shared our faith with someone. Or we saw God do a miracle in our lives. And we felt like we could walk on the clouds. We felt like, you know, there, there was the true overflow. That springs of living water were flowing out of our lives and we had deep gratitude and everything. But here's the truth of the matter. Elams don't last forever. And we gotta go back into the wilderness of the world. And that's what happened to Israel. So they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Now, Sin here is not as we would think of Sin that came to be known as falling short of God's glory, etc. Some scholars believe that sin represents a shortened version of Sinai. Uh, we don't know for sure, but Sinai can mean thorny or it can mean to shine. And the people of Israel are in the desert and they're two weeks away from coming to Mount Sinai. So we don't know for sure what the wilderness of sin would have represented back in the day, but here's what we can say. It represents a dry, barren place. Sometimes we find ourselves in places of dryness and barrenness, and often it can be a result of our sin. And so the children of Israel are en route. They're between Elam, middle of the verse, and Sinai. And the Bible gives us a time marker on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Something that you'll note when you read your Bible is that often the Bible will give a date uh, the Bible's not once upon a time kind of stuff. That's not what this is about. There's an actual calendar here. And they are 30 days removed from their departure from Egypt in the Exodus. They left Egypt on Nisan 15. It came to be known as Nisan. It was originally Abib 15. And they left Egypt on the Feast of First Fruits. So it's 30 days. It's the second month now. Remember, the, they, their calendar was redone and Abib became the first month now. 30 days into the journey. So only a month removed from leaving the house of slavery to the day, 30 days. And they leave the oasis and they come into the wilderness again. And this is how life can feel. We can feel like we come into places of refreshment and blessing and you know we can feel so close to God and the wilderness can simply be the courtyard or the parking lot. Can I get a witness? You know, sometimes you walk out to the courtyard and you realize somebody took the last maple bar and you think, who was that rabble that took that last maple bar? What's wrong with these people, right? Sometimes it could be the parking lot. Sometimes it could be, you know, the next day at work, you find yourself in a thorny situation, etc. And so the whole congregation, Exodus 16, 2, of the sons of Israel they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They had what we might call the desert blues. Why were they grumbling? Well, it would appear that they grumbled because they had a grumbling tummy. Any of you cranky when you're hungry? Can I get a witness, anybody? So, you know, they, they were out in the wilderness, and we don't know exactly what was happening. We know that they weren't completely out of food, but they began to grumble and it says, the sons of Israel said to them, Moses and Aaron, would that, or if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought 
us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Doesn't take long. When we move from Elam, the place of abundance, palm trees and springs of water and praise the Lord. And it wasn't that long ago before uh, when they were singing that song after the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea and they sang the hit song, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name, horse and rider he hurled into the sea. Sing it with me. Hail, hail to the line of Judah, right? And then the song began to die. And a little grumbling in the tummy is about all it took. And then they made this declaration. Would that we had died. They're, some, they're saying something like this. Would that we had died among the plagues or maybe died in the Red Sea with the Egyptian army. All because your tummy's a little grumbly? Really? How dramatic are they being and then they envision Friday night, Pharaoh's buffet, all you can eat. We had pots of meat and bread to the full. Do you think they're painting an accurate picture of what actually was happening in Egypt? Do you think that they had overflowing buffets in the land of slavery? I doubt it. But sometimes when we get in the flesh, we make the past sound better than it was and the present sound much worse than it actually is. Anybody have a dramatic streak in you? I'm famished, if you're a teenager. I haven't eaten in 90 minutes. I'm starving, right? And sometimes when we're hungry and we find ourselves in a wilderness, so to speak, what we do is we begin to say some silly things we can romanticize the past in the world. You know, it's hard to be a Christian, we might say. It's difficult. I didn't sign up for this. Persecution and difficulty and the Lord testing and stretching. Come on, man. And we can romanticize the past in the world and we can make the present sound worse than it actually is. Here we are living in America, not Afghanistan. Amen? Here we are with so many blessings. I wonder when we pray over a meal, if we say something like this, oh Lord, thank you for providing so richly over and over again for this family. I wonder how many times we just simply take for granted the miracle of another meal right at our fingertips. And usually we can choose what we want, when we want to eat it, where we're going to go. Jesus says that's what the world chases after, what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. And sometimes we find ourselves buying into that mindset and becoming consumed. You ever had a conversation with a loved one and you say, where do you want to eat? And I don't know, where do you want to eat? I don't know. And then you suggest a place, all right, let's go over here. And they're like, nah. <laughs> Were you really asking me for a suggestion? Yes, but it's limited to three things that I would like you to speak right now, all right? And so they grumbled. And I have to tell you, brethren, that I've been in that position many, many times and not liked what I've, I've seen in my own heart, how easy it is for me to move from a place of abundance and feeling like I'm walking in the spirit to grumbling. And it doesn't matter if you say it out loud, heaven still hears. And so we can grumble, 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 under our breath, out loud, whatever it might be. 
And then they made this declaration, which is tragic. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Something like this. I wish we never had been saved. I'm hungry. I wish we never would have applied that blood of the lamb on our door. I wish we would have drowned in the sea with the Egyptian army. Oh my goodness, really? All because your tummy's a little grumbly? Yeah. Hard to be a Christian. Difficult sometimes. And we look back to our past and we see snapshots and we paint the picture as though the buffet was overflowing, but we don't talk about the next morning when the meat turned in our tummy and it wasn't pretty the next morning. That's not what the devil does. You don't think about the terrible times when you were in slavery to your sin and you cried out for freedom and found the living waters and the living bread. This is how we can be. And so they made these declarations all because they were hungry. And, and we, we would all say, well, we can relate. I mean, hunger, it's difficult. But what was really going on? They were making declarations like, was this all for naught that we got delivered from this land only to die out here? Riken writes in his commentary, really, the Israelites had nothing to complain about. They were not running out of food. This is what they said, of course. We're starving out here, but it simply wasn't true. In the next chapter, they talk about needing to water their livestock, Exodus 17.3. Obviously, they still had flocks and herds that they had brought out of Egypt. They could drink milk, they could make cheese, and if necessary, they could even eat meat. They weren't starving. This is confirmed by Psalm 78, which speaks of the food that they craved. Write down verses 18 and 30 of Psalm 78. The food that they craved. Not the food essential for their survival. The Israelites confused what they wanted with what they needed. This is often the source of discontentment in us, thinking that our greeds are really our needs, close quote. Riken is arguing that when they said this, they really weren't starving. It was more an expectation of what might happen, in anticipation of running out of food, not so much that they were out of food at that moment. And this is what we can tend to do when we worry. Shane preached about this last week, is we tend to make all, we paint all these terrible pictures about tomorrow that really never come to reality. And that's what they started to do. It looks like we're gonna run out of resources. What's God doing to us? What are you doing, Moses? And it didn't get any better. If you could turn to your right, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Let me show you something that happened a little bit later. And this will give you a little bit of an idea about the manna that came down. Numbers 11, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 11.1. 1. Now the people, Numbers 11.1, 1, became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out, Numbers 11.3. And so they named the place, the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Kids ate for free apparently. <laughs> The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, 
and the onions and the garlic. Some of them were Italiano. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except, oh, wait for it, this manna. It's not that they were out of food. They just didn't like the menu. Remember the leeks and the onions and the fish? But you were in slavery. Yes, but it was Friday night, free fish night at Pharaoh's kingdom. It was so wonderful. What's wrong with you people? And then you read about the manna. It says, the manna was like coriander seed, its appearance like that of bdellium, which is something like a resin. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between two millstones. They would beat it in the mortar, boil it. There was definitely options in the pot, make cakes with it. And its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now, I don't know about you, but cake every day sounds like a dream. And to have cake, you get all the essential nutrients. You fathers know this. Your wife goes on that weekend retreat, comes back. What did you feed the kids? Your answer? Cake. Pancakes? Leftover pancakes? By the way, a pancake is still cake, brethren. If you make a muffin, it's still cake batter. If you add blueberries to it, it does make it healthy. So just so you all know, right? Cake every day. What are they whining about? But this is what they did. We're sick. It wasn't that they were out of food. They were just sick of the manna. Sick of it. Sick of the manicotti. <laughs> and so they whined and they complained and they said some very dumb things to the extent that they wished they had never been saved. They wished they had died by the Lord's hand. They romanticized the past, the good old days, and made their present seem more awful than it was. And before we point a bony, righteous finger at them, we all do it. I, I often, you know, look at my own heart and when the Lord puts us through a season of testing, if you turn back to Exodus, a gentleman came up to me, he's newer to our congregation, and he said, Pastor Michael, I, I just wanted to share something that hit me. He said, during the whole stretch of COVID, it was obviously a difficult time, and he says, I wish I would have seen this in the midst of it, but he said, the Lord has done some beautiful things in my life and he's working in my family and I don't think that ever would have happened without this stretch of the COVID stuff. And I know, you know, it's devastated a lot of people, but his point was that it stretched and tested him and he's at a better place now than he would have been. And if you guys remember, it wasn't that long ago that pretty much everything was stripped away from us, right? I mean, we couldn't watch sports. There was, there was nothing. You're not going to restaurants. You know, in, in many stretches, you're not leaving your house. You're not doing anything. And we, we had to do some soul searching, amen, about where we stand with the Lord and what are our priorities and what, you know, what do we invest our time in? And the Lord was testing the people of Israel here and getting them to look at what, what really mattered. But they complained. 
and they reminisced about their old life. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread, Exodus 16, 4, from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, Exodus 16, 4. What does it say? That I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Instruction is a form of Torah, God's law. I'm gonna rain bread from heaven. This is the first recorded event where Wonder Bread appeared on the planet. How many of you remember Wonder Bread? Wonder Bread, I'm positive that some of us still haven't digested what we've (laughs) ate in the past. I don't even know what that stuff was made of, but... It was apparently a wonder. Anyway, and, but this was the true wonder bread. And God was going to do something, and it would last for the next 40 years for Israel. And it was going to come from a place, and this is probably a pretty good representation of what happened. It was going to come down, the source would be heaven, and it would appear every day except for the Sabbath day. For 40 years, God dropped the manna. Every single day, manna for today. What was God trying to teach the children of Israel? Here's one of the main things that you got to see. He was teaching them daily dependence on him. Shane preached in Matthew 6, and I was taking notes last week, and I wrote down, I am going to stop worrying about tomorrow today. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm not sure how long that lasted, but I wrote it down. I'm going, you know how we make these declarations. I'm going to stop, I'm going to start my diet tomorrow. I will begin that workout regimen tomorrow. And Jesus said, don't you worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough issues. Let me take care of you today and I'll meet you tomorrow. And if, if many of us could get this point, we would be free from a lot of things that consume us. I'm not saying you shouldn't plan and all that. I'm just talking about don't get consumed with worrying about all this stuff because all this stuff, most of, of what we worry about never even happens anyway as we learned. And so the Lord is sending a message. I am your bread. The source is going to be heaven. I want you to look for me. And he stretched and he tested them. And apparently it was just a little time uh, of hunger. And of course they failed the test. To Luke chapter four, let me just show you a quick picture. I've been telling you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. I've been telling you about the wilderness tradition among scholars and how Jesus retraces the fallen footsteps of Israel to succeed where they failed. And in Luke chapter four, Luke has a version of Jesus's temptation that is really insightful. Jesus has had his own Elam experience where he has been baptized. The heavens open. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit of the Lord descends upon him and uh, he's about to begin his public ministry. And so he's baptized identifying with the people as they went through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses, all of that Elam experience. And then it says this, Luke 4.1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
For 40 days being tempted by the devil. Remember, Israel uh, wandered in the desert 40 years. Jesus does this 40-day thing. He's tempted by the devil apparently the whole time. And he ate nothing during those days, repeating the fallen footsteps of Israel. And they certainly didn't go this long. And when they had ended, he became hungry. So it would appear that he was tempted the whole 40 days. We don't know all of what happened there. But then the three famous temptations occur. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones or this stone to become bread. In the Judean wilderness, if you see a picture of it, there's limestone rocks everywhere. And they look, interestingly enough, like little loaves of bread. So Jesus goes around the wilderness, pushed there by the Spirit. He's being tempted left and right. And then the devil comes in a moment of weakness. This is what I've noticed in my life. I can come off a a spiritual high, feel like I'm as close as I've ever been to God, and then kind of my resources deplete, and I can find myself in a place of weakness, and this is when I feel like the enemy often comes to us. And he'll say something like this, and reading between the lines, something like this to Jesus. You're, you're the bread of God that came down from heaven. You're, since you're the son of God, why is it that your stomach is grumbling right now? Why have you gone 40 days with no food? You should be in a palace somewhere. Somebody should be waving you with one of those fans and feeding you grapes. Why is it that you're hungry? Why don't you just complain right now? Why don't you just grumble, 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 grumble? And Jesus had every right. And they say, if you go 40 days without food, at some point in a fast that long without food, your body, you will stop being hungry. But at the point that you're about to die is when your hunger actually returns. Jesus physiologically is about to die. That's how desperate his hunger is. His hunger has re-kicked in at the end of the 40 days and the devil comes right then. If you're the son of God, or since you're the son of God, we'll command this stone to turn into bread. Why is your father that's so pleased with you keeping back food from you? Why don't you just complain and do a miracle and take care of your needs? And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Matthew's version has it this way but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus responds to the devil with the word of God and says there's a deeper bread, there's a deeper hunger that must be satisfied before the bread of the world. And that's why I've come. And here's a lesson for all of us. In the armor of God, we have something called the sword of the spirit. And it's the word of God. And the word for word there in Ephesians 6, 17 is not the word lagos, which is a typical word for word. It's rhema. And here's what it means. It means that when you use the word of God in battle of temptation, the rhema word is a word specific to the temptation to fight it off. So when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, he's essentially He's countering the devil. What I don't need is physical bread. I need the bread of God. I need the word of God. And he counters the devil. He doesn't say, uh, let me think of a scripture. Here's the devil. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. (laughs) I mean, 
that's a good scripture, but for this moment, he actually quotes something very relevant to the moment to counter the attack. This is what you and I need to do. When we feel like maybe, you know, we're not close to God or uh, he's, we feel like he's holding something back or whatever, we've got to stand upon the promise pertinent to the moment. And that's why you need to know your Bible. Amen? That's why you need to be able to counter the attacks of the enemy. Jesus is showing us how to do it. And he succeeds, of course, where Israel failed. And instead of complaining and murmuring, he quotes the word of God. And essentially, the message to us is we need to do the same. Back to Exodus 16. And so there's Israel, and they've been complaining, and the Lord doesn't even address the complaint. He still provides, and he does that so many times in our lives, right? We're complaining, and he provides, and we almost sometimes just move on without even giving thanks. And it says, it will come about on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in. It will be twice as much. Now, they're getting instructions about how to gather the manna as they gather it daily. There's only one day a week where they collect double, and they do that the day before the Sabbath so that they don't have to go out and get the manna that day. They can rest and worship. This is an early institution of a rhythm of the Sabbath day, which we all need to pay attention to. And the test of even how they gathered the manna was something that God was watching more for them to reveal their hearts than for God. They had to pick up the portion that they needed for that day on that day. And God would provide it. They just needed to go and get it. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? That's a little manna humor for you. And Let me say it one more time. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? The manna was there from heaven, but he didn't drop it into their mouths. And your Bible will not fly off your nightstand Drop onto your noggin and via osmosis, enter in. You actually have to make a move. You've got to go and get what God has dropped down. And here's how you do it. You open the word of God. Read the proverb that matches the day of the month. Read the psalm that matches the day of the month. Do something. Get some manna today. Amen. Get it into you, man. You need it more than you think you do. And if you don't do it pretty early in the day and get into the word of God, you know what ends up happening? You get in your car, you get on the freeway, you start living, and you're grumble, 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 grumble. And we're like, what's wrong with you? Well, no manna today, huh? <laughs> Tell me to read my Bible. We are called to ingest what God has dropped. The Bible has come to us literally from heaven. And we are called to open it and let it feed our souls. And I won't go over all the statistics with you about the sad commentaries in the evangelical world about Bible knowledge and Bible reading. And 
And there's many different ways to get it. You can listen to it. You can listen to sermons. You can put on that audio Bible. You, you can multitask. You can, there's a number of ways to hear the word of God and read the word of God. Even one verse is better than no verses. Well, we need it. And so Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Tough gig leadership can be. <laughs> Why are you complaining against us? What do you want me to do? You ever had your kids complain to you or somebody? What do you want me to do about it? <laughs> right? Can I fix it for you? So get this. Harvard University was founded in 1636. Its stated purpose was to train literate clergy. Among its mottos were Veritas Christo et Ecclesi, truth of Christ and the church, and in Christum Glorium, to the glory of Christ. Now Harvard has hired an atheist as its chief chaplain. And no, this is not a joke. Quoting from Dr. Michael Brown. As reported by the New York Post, the spiritual leader doesn't need a higher power. Harvard's university's organization of chaplains is getting a new president to coordinate the campus Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, and assorted other religions, religious communities. The new president, 44-year-old Greg Epstein, does not identify with any of those traditional religions himself. He is an atheist. But how can an atheist be a university chaplain, you ask? Well, Epstein explained to the New York Times that there is a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition but still experience a real need for conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and live an ethical life. We don't look, quoting him now, to God or a God for answers. We are each other's answers. And all I can say is, good luck! You mean to tell me that you people are going to meet at Harvard, look at one another, and find the answers in one another? <laughs> Rots a ruck. Are you kidding me? But this is, this is the mindset of humanism. Oh, we don't need a God. Well, we'll just have conversations. Really? And so the only problem is with uh, Epstein's explanation is, well, everything, says Brown. <laughs> he may believe in God or not. He may follow a religion or not. This is his own business, but he may have same, some great ideas about an ethical life. But to be a chaplain, by definition, means to be a religious leader, says Brown. Not simply a department head or an administrator or someone who believes in ethical living. And so to appoint an atheist to be chief university chaplain is like appointing a Christian evangelist to head up the university's atheist club or a devout Muslim to head up the university's Judaism club or it is a total contradiction, he says, in both purpose and logic. And it is. Now I feel like grumbling. And sometimes, you know, I, I look at Harvard University founded on training up clergy for the ministry and now they're so far gone, they put an atheist as the head of their chaplains. And people, most people will not even give it a 
second thought. And Moses said, why, why, are, you, why are you looking to us? I, I can't answer this. Look, if Moses can't answer it, I don't think the chaplain's club at Harvard's gonna answer it. <laughs> but the Bible says that man did eat the bread of angels and God sent them food in abundance, Psalm 78, 25. And Moses said, this is what's going to happen. When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, eight, and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And all God's people said, ouch. You mean to tell me that just about every time I've complained about something that heaven heard it, and maybe what I thought I was complaining about was more against a complaint to my father than it was to the person sitting next to me. I mean, I wonder how many times our conversations have digressed into complaining sessions and heaven was like, oh, really? Boy, you've got it so bad. Mm-hmm. Michael, Archangel. Take note of that, would you? <laughs> Not that God needs Michael to take notes, but. The Lord hears when we complain. <laughs> Yikes. And Moses, who's now learned the gift of delegation, said to Aaron, say to the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. I love this strategic delegation. Aaron, you tell him. God's calling you into his office. And all God's people said, rut row. <laughs> Come forward. He hears your grumblings. Come into my office. It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. Lion, come forth. Tell me when it's over. Tell me when it's over. <laughs> and it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I just wrote in my notes, can God's glory enter into our grumblings? Apparently so. And God manifested himself. It would appear here in a more spectacular way, and I don't, I don't know all the details of this, but he appeared in the cloud, and the people looked. And sometimes all you have to do is take a fresh look at God, and it quiets everything in your grumbling heart. Amen. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel, 12. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God's saying, I guess I, I have to prove myself to you again, huh? You haven't seen enough and I know as a human being that's probably how we all feel, right? We, we almost have to re-believe over and over again despite how much we've experienced. And so the Lord promises what's coming. And it came about at evening that quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp, just as the Lord promised. Meat in the evening, bread in the morning. Quails mentioned here migrate regularly between South Europe and Arabia across the Sinai Peninsula. They're small bullet-headed birds with a strong but low flight usually roosting on the ground or in low bushes at nightfall. When exhausted, the quail would be unable to take off again. The birds are good eating. They're a delicacy among Egyptians, and 
there they landed and Israel got the bread in the morning and the quails in the evening and this is the first uh, institution of a quail McGriddle, just so you guys know. Anyway. <laughs> and when the layer of dew evaporated, 14, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. We read some of the details. We know it was sweet as honey in other scriptures, etc. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Let's go back to the picture just for a second. And you can imagine, it was on the ground, right? And uh, one, one scholar I read this week said, you could probably translate this, what should we call it? What should we call it? What is it? And I wonder if they said, what is it with a little attitude? Here's some free advice. If you're ever at somebody's house, friend, in-law, family member, and something gets served to you, do not ever say, what is it? Because you may be wearing it. Can I get a witness? Or your mom or dad says something like this, dinner's at 6 p.m. Response, what are you making? Don't do that. Because mama has a gun. <laughs> don't, don't do that. That's, that's a bad career move. So after first service, lady comes up to me and she's sweet sister in our fellowship. I think her family's watching right now. She said, some years ago, they were invited over to a Greek home and the uh, lady of the home served up fish head soup. And so the kids were looking at their mother for direction and mom was trying to ingest the soup and not look at the eyes staring back. And, oh, it's wonderful. Breaking a commandment. Oh, it's great, great soup. And so she ate it, you know, selflessly, doing the right thing. And the woman was so impressed with her like of the fish head soup, she said, here's another bowl. No, 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 I'm famished. I couldn't eat another bite. And they said, what is it? It's a divine gift. It's the bread of heaven. And this is what the Lord has commanded. We're winding down now. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. An omer is about seven and a half pints or about two quarts. Just manna for today. Just enough for what you need. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. He who had gathered little had no lack. Some see a miracle here, like no matter how much they gathered, it was the right amount. And some others just say they followed the instruction. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And into the household went the manna. And God met the need with the quail and the manna. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 8.15, just something you can note, Paul's writing about giving, a, a giving church, giving to poor saints, and he says, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack, 2 Corinthians 8.15. And his point is that when we give selflessly to others, what will happen is we'll be fulfilling the priorities of God's kingdom. When we sacrifice for other people, we'll be doing what is kind of the deeper lesson of the kingdom here. And so Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses and left part of it until morning. 
and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. You could kind of see Moses. All right, couple of just minor things. Just get enough for your household and don't leave. There's no leftovers. Clean your plate. This is the first clean your plate because there's other people starving all over the world. So you got to eat everything, right? And, and don't leave any till the morning. And somebody assuredly, oh, you know what? I think I'm just going to put a little bit over here. No, God will meet you tomorrow. He said, this is going to be an everyday provision. You just gather it daily. I don't know. And they hid it away, and it began to stink. Whenever you don't trust God, your life starts to become foul. Amen? And worms were coming out, and it was kind of a sad thing. And as I mentioned earlier, this was a lesson of daily dependence. Manna saved was manna forfeited. The bigger lesson Jesus taught is, I don't want you worrying about tomorrow. You seek me today. I'll meet you tomorrow. And so they gathered it morning by morning. Final verse. Notice, brethren, morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. And I think what God was doing in this final verse is he was saying to his people, I want you to learn that my mercies are new every morning, not afternoon. <laughs> oh, they're still there in the afternoon. Uh, I'm famous for doing this. See if you can relate. Those little uh, alarms we have on our phone, I set usually three of them. Let's see. I'll wake up at 7.05, but if that doesn't work out, 7.10. If that doesn't work out, 7.15. What I've essentially done is guaranteed that I will wake up at 7.15. But it's good to have a backup plan. And the alarm goes off. You know how annoying that alarm is. Every in the household's mad at you. <laughs> Some of you just sleep through it. And then you just, ah, five more minutes. Tell me a story. <laughs> Where's my blankie? When we don't seek the Lord first thing in the morning, you know what happens to us? Sometimes we don't seek him at all. It kind of, I think the Lord's teaching the children of Israel a pace of the day. I want you morning by morning to gather this up so you have what you need, sustenance for today. I already told you don't worry about tomorrow. But what about, what are we, what are, no, today. Decide to stop worrying about tomorrow, today. I'll have the, the manna for you out there in the morning. Just take it in. Today. Open the word of God today. Make no declarations about tomorrow. I'll meet you there. I'll take care of it. Just trust me today. Now, communion's coming around. We're at a communion Sunday. And if you don't have the elements, would you raise up your hand so that the ushers can get them to you? We have some over here in the front, some back here. So as they're coming around, would you guys put up John chapter 6 on the screen? You guys don't have to turn there because I know you are starting to take the elements, but I want to show you a concluding text and then we'll take the elements and do a final song here. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and the people have located him. They've kind of chased him down and this is John 6 and they come to him and they said, when they found him, John 6, 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
or loose translation, where was you? <laughs> I often mess with my wife and do, do this thing where I say to her either, where was you or where were you? And I do it pretty much just to be annoying. <laughs> She's like, exactly. <laughs> where was you? Anyway. <laughs> and so the people, they come and they, they're like, where were you? And you got any more of that garlic bread with mozzarella on top? <laughs> and Jesus said, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, listen to this. Don't work for the food which perishes. I think of melting and worms and etc. But for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. And so Jesus, they ask about, you know, what sign he's gonna do and skip down to verse 31. They ask about the sign and they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. There's a bread that's beyond the physical and the Lord will take us through seasons of testing to teach us what we really need the most. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, the matzah. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent the bread of God. You so loved us that you sent your best. The manna was pointing to a future reality for the children of Israel that the one born in Bethlehem or the house of bread would become living bread. He talked about a water that was beyond physical water to the woman at the well. He talked to this group about a bread that wasn't a physical bread. It was a deep spiritual bread. It's a bread that only you can give and it's the only bread that will truly satisfy Jesus is the bread of life. If you've not met him as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't come to him and believed in him, you're gonna keep on thirsting, you're gonna keep on hungering, and you're never gonna be satisfied, truly. But if you come to him and if you believe in him, you will be filled, you will be satisfied. It doesn't mean that you won't find yourself in desert places and stretching and testing won't happen in your life. It's gonna happen, but... 
God's going to continue to reveal what you need the most. He knows you need bread. He knows you need clothing. But he knows that there's things deeper that you and I need. And Father, forgive us for the times that we've grumbled so quickly when we have so much. And in the times that you've stripped things away to show us our hearts. Thank you for the times that, you know, maybe some can relate to this right now where we've kind of caught ourselves and said, hmm, I've passed this light post before in the desert. And last time I was here, the last 10 times I was here, I grumbled and skinned my knee every time. Oh God, help me not to do that again. And the next time you strip some things away and put me in a desert place, let me say, I don't live on bread alone. I live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Drop the manna into my life, Lord. If you're teaching me something in this season, and all I've done is grumble and complain and not looked to you, forgive me. Lord, I'm saying this to my own heart. We want to be a people that becomes more like you. And when we saw you minister on the earth, you, you told the disciples, I have bread that you don't even know about. You guys are so consumed with the physical. That's not why I came here. And often you used physical miracles, Lord, to make deeper spiritual points. Oh, open our eyes that we may see. Give us clearer vision for what you're trying to do in our hearts. It's very difficult in a land like this maybe to see the kind of lessons that we need to see. But Lord, this last year and a half has certainly afforded us some of those opportunities. And I know there's people here that are still hurting as a result of what's happened, but would you come and bring that manna for today? Would you come and bring fresh living water, restore hearts and souls and marriages and walks with you? And if you're not a Christian, man, I don't know what else to say other than just cry out to him to save you. Do it today. Don't believe the lie about tomorrow. Take in the manna today. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And as we're going to sing a great old hymn about your faithfulness, your mercy is new every morning. We thank you so much. Bless your people. Strengthen them for the week ahead. In Christ's holy and mighty name, I pray.